Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, a 34-year law enforcement veteran, the author of uh, several books, including A Cop's Life and the soon-to-be-released Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety. I'm also the founder of The Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. And on this show, we are dedicated to the health and uh, the, I'm not going to say the wealth, because that wouldn't be appropriate here on this show, but the um, uh, physical health, the emotional uh, well-being of America's law enforcement community. And of course, on this show, everything we talk about is related to just that topic. So before I introduce my guests who are actually in studio today, we have a treat because we have two amazing guests in the studio with me. Um, I want to do our reality check. So, um, so far, since our last show, two more law enforcement officers have given their lives in the line of duty. And just this year alone, uh, eight law enforcement officers have uh, paid the ultimate sacrifice. The first uh, for this month is Trooper Zachary Fink of the Florida Highway Patrol. Trooper Zachary Fink was killed in a vehicle crash during a pursuit on Interstate 95 north of Crosstown Parkway in Port St. Lucie. At 2.40 a.m., the subject was speeding and reckless driving on I-95 and St. Lucie. Deputies attempted to initiate a traffic stop. Other agencies joined the pursuit when the subject did not stop. The subject made a U-turn on Interstate 95, driving southbound in the northbound lanes of I-95. Trooper Fink initiated a U-turn to stop the vehicle and was struck by a semi-tractor trailer. Trooper Fink was transported to the hospital where he succumbed to his injuries. The driver of the tractor trailer was also killed. The pursuit continued with the subject driving the wrong way on I-95. He eventually crashed and fled on foot and was apprehended. Trooper Fink had served the Florida Highway Patrol for three years. Trooper Zachary Fink, Florida Highway Patrol, Florida, end of watch Friday, February 2nd, 2024. The second officer to give his life in the line of duty um, since our last show is Chief Deputy Sheriff Ken ProRourke of the Moody County Sheriff's Office in South Dakota. Chief Deputy Sheriff Ken ProRourke was struck and killed by the driver of a vehicle being pursued by the Madison Police Department at 4.12 p.m. Chief Deputy ProRourke responded to the call for assistance and was deploying spike strips on South Dakota Highway 34. The driver intentionally swerved towards the deputy, killing him. The subject has been charged with one count, first-degree murder. Chief Deputy ProRourke has served with the Moody County Sheriff's Office for almost eight years. Chief Deputy Sheriff Ken ProRourke, Moody County Sheriff's Department, South Dakota, end of watch, Friday, February 2nd, 2024. These two law enforcement officers gave their lives in the line of duty, serving their communities. May they rest in peace. Now, also, um, we're now one month, we're one month into 2024, and uh, already, 32 law enforcement officers have, have been shot in the line of duty. More than one a day. This is what we saw last year in 2024. 378 law enforcement officers were shot in the line of duty. Now we are continuing that horrendous uh, trend by 32 
in the in just the month of January. And so um, the, the, the violence towards law enforcement continues. And uh, if you had a chance to see uh, national news, you will have seen the uh, despicable attack on the two New York City police officers by the illegal migrants that attacked them, swarmed them, and, uh, and then were released without even bail. So this is, a, uh, once again, a demonstrable of the decay of the, uh, the civilization that law enforcement has to serve. And the dangers continue, not just physically, but emotionally and psychologically as well. And that's what we're going to talk about today with my two guests. Well, it was just like magic. I just <laughs> did that. I have Scott and Liz Brown with me in the studio today. And it's, uh, it's appropriate that uh, Scott and Liz are in Las Vegas today because they were they're speaking at the Concerns of Police Survivors Traumas in Law Enforcement Conference, which is being held here. Now, Concerns of Police Survivors, one of my favorite organizations. Um, in fact, the, our, our organization, the Wounded Blue, is based on the model that Concerns of Police Survivors has uh, in dealing with the fallen. So uh, Concerns of Police Survivors has been around for decades now. They do amazing work. Uh, working with the, the families of, of police officers, law enforcement officers, who have given their lives in the line of duty. And they have expanded a little bit uh, because of, of the traumas that these families face. And, and besides dealing with the, the um, um, aspects of peer support, which is, which is one of their primary functions, they also um, have a very, very robust um, schedule of events both during National Police Week and also all year long um, in helping the families of law enforcement officers and even you know those associated like partners in dealing coping with the deaths of their of their husbands of their wives children spouses I mean, you name it concerns of police survivors does I know Scott you've been heavily involved with them Liz you've been heavily involved with them oh also by the way they they're Scott is the author, along with my friend Victoria Newman, of this book. And uh, this is a, a Facing Evil uh, is something we're going to be talking about here in depth um, concerning Scott's uh, uh, experience with, with a, 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 a gunman who, who um, took the lives of, of several law enforcement officers. Welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you for having you. us. All right. So let's, let's, talk, let's start with you, Scott. Um, if you would, I want the audience to get to know you a little bit better. Talk about, you know, um, where you grew up, um, what it was that led you to choose a law enforcement uh, life. <laughs> that's that's a funny one, actually. Um, so I grew up in uh, Fair Oaks, California, which is just out of Sacramento. Um, I am one of three. I have a twin brother, um, identical twins. Uh, you know, so it's always I always had somebody to fight or play with at <laughs> any given time. Um, so that was great. And I have an older sister. Um, we still all live in the same area. My sister's in the Bay Area and uh, I'm still local with my brother and my parents still live there. Um, so we, you know, we do that. Um, went to high school, did, uh, you know, I was an athlete, more of an athlete than a student, according to my parents. <laughs> um, I did football, wrestling and track. And then I got a scholarship to play football at Sac State. I did that, got my degree in psychology. And that's actually where I met Liz. 
Um, we met when we were 18, uh, freshmen in college. Wow. Um, we're actually coming up. This, this, this year will be our 20th an wedding anniversary. Um, she's put up with me for that long. Um, so anyway, I got my degree there um, in psychology with a minor in criminal justice. Uh, finished up my football. And honestly, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I was, I had a degree and I was bartending at Applebee's and, you know, working at Christmas tree lots. And uh, frankly, it was actually one of my uh, fellow ball players had just finished uh, the Sheriff's Academy and he was like, hey, dude, you should really look into this. And I'm all, what's it about? And he was like, he's like, yeah, you get to drive a, you know, drive a car fast and carry a gun and they, they fight and they, you know, do all this other stuff. He forgot the paperwork. <laughs> um, and I was like, yeah, sounds cool. So I, I did almost no research anything like that, turned in my application to the Sheriff's Academy and I was in their extended night one for people that were still, you know, finishing up school or had a, had a job and uh, got into it and loved it from moment one. I, my parents, it was funny, my mom, she said that she knew I found my calling because I studied on purpose. <laughs> Nobody was yelling at me to do it. Um, so yeah, so finished that. I ended near the top of my class. I was the top gun in my academy, that kind of thing. Um, and it was a perfect transition from college academia to and then sports to the academy because I was in the study mode. I was in the physical mode. So um, I, I loved every aspect of it. Got hired right out of the academy in 2002. Um, I was actually in the academy when 9-11 happened. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was one of those like because I wasn't hired necessarily. And it was one of those aha moments of, OK, if this doesn't work out, if they don't hire me, they don't pick me up. You know, I'm, I'm doing the military route or whatever it is. Right. As it is, they picked me up, um, hired me right away, and then did our normal transition through the department. I worked in our correctional facility for three years, give or take. Um, did the training officer and the CERT team and that whatnot. Transferred out to our patrol. Loved that from moment one. Worked graveyard most of my time because, you know, less admin, you know, got to drive fast and they didn't go forward in my pursuits. So did that for about four and a half years, give or take, and then uh, ended up going back to the jail during the whole budget and when the economy went to crap, um, our department actually fired 170 something deputies. Wow. Um, hired most of them back, but then some of us had to go road, pack, road back to the jail kind of thing. It was a weird time. Anyway, went back out and then uh, became a field training officer and then uh, ended up going to our POP team, um, which is our promo oriented policing team. And when people ask what it is, I tell them it's kind of the Swiss Army knife of our department. We did, <laughs> um, you know, high impact sweeps. We did John Stings. We did by bus, but we also did community events, that kind of thing. Our six man team averaged anywhere from fifty to seventy felony arrests a month. Um, that was also back before California made dope legal and everything else. Right. Um, and then that was where what we'll talk about later. That's where I'm, that's where uh, the incident with Danny occurred. Um, but I'd known Danny Pryor. Um, we'd known each other for 10 years before I was even on the pop team because he was on the same graveyard team we were on and everything else. Um, so there's a whole crew of us. You know how it is. You know, you come up with these guys and your friends. You're not just partners anymore. Um, and then uh, I did pop team for about two years and then went to detectives and did property crimes and animal cruelty for about five years. And then now I'm out at our airport on our pop team again out there and doing investigations. And then I'm part of uh, I'm a TFO for uh, the FBI. What is a TFO? A uh, task force officer. I'm on their violent crimes unit. Um, mostly it's a liaison between the FBI and the sheriff's department. So if they need help, but at the airport, a lot of things are federal jurisdiction. So they have a sworn in as U.S. Marshals because local deputies can't enforce federal law. So they just, right. it's a way to kind of bridge that gap. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So, so how many years total now you've been in law enforcement? Uh, this will be 22 this year. 22 years. And you can retire at 25 years? 
Uh, well, we can retire at 50, 50, at age 50. You're vested at 20, but you get your full retirement. You don't take a hit. You don't take, if you wait till 50. And I just turned 46, so I got another four. Okay. And I was 20, right. 24 when I got hired. <laughs> I got it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Liz, let's go to you. All right. Tell me a little bit about yourself. And uh, I, I mean, now I, I know that you guys were childhood sweethearts. Yes. Uh, talk a little bit about, about you growing up. Uh, well, I grew up in Sacramento as well. We actually lived only about 15 minutes from each other, but we were rival high schools. We didn't really know each other until we hit college. I'm actually the oldest of seven. So there's seven of us siblings, so good and bad. Um, we I, we say we're like the blue bloods, Sunday night dinners, when you see them get together, it, that was a requirement. That was a requirement growing up, all of us getting together. Um, there's actually now seven grandchildren um, amongst our kids. I think I got that number right. I can't imagine christmas at your place it's at my mom's it's at grandma's wow. and it is wild and it's so much fun and those are the memories growing up and now our next generation of the cousins get to have those memories growing up which is amazing um i went to uc davis graduated um we were same time frame i actually moved down to la for three and a half years because even though he made us sound like we were sweet all that time we actually did break up our senior year of college and had some separation time about 9-11 time actually. That was one of the first moments I remember having that reality check of what Scott was doing because he was in the academy. And I remember calling him, we weren't even together at the time and I was panicked. I was like, what happens to, because being in Los Angeles, we were locked down. He was in Sacramento and he's like, I'm not sure, but that's when he told me, because if I don't get hired, I'm going into the military. And at that time, I still knew that we would be together even though we weren't. Um, and then it was just a few years later that we got married. And so in 2004, um, we have three boys now. Our oldest is 15, our middle one is 12, and our youngest is 10. Um, so in 2014, when this incident happened, think, imagine three little boys under six years old. Um, we were in it. Um, we were in the thick of it, thick of having little boys. And it's amazing watching them grow up in this household and all the things that we have gone through. They're resilient. Those boys are incredible. So watching them in that law enforcement life and hopefully we're thinking they're not going to choose the law enforcement life. We'll see. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> yeah, but things are good. And yeah, 20 years counting is pretty incredible to say that time we made is this going fall. by awfully quickly. Huh? Yes. Crazy. Blink. Felt like the new guy, and now I'm the one who. Like, now Talk, you're the old guy. Talking old guy, about yeah. retirement. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's pretty incredible. I don't have the app yet on my phone, but I'm getting close. Right? <laughs> to count those, down those days. Yes. So every every law enforcement officer deals with the possibilities of living through a critical incident we all every every cop understands from the very beginning of their career that violence is part of their life now and that violence you know can take many many forms so you you went in right out of college you went in as a young a young man um do you think that that you were really prepared mentally and emotionally um, when you accepted the job, did you really, did you really have an understanding of what policing was going to be about? No, no, I, I, I say it many times. The Academy was good. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great place to start and it gives you a frame of reference, but going from the last day of the Academy and then three days later, sitting in a car in South Sac and 
you know, the first call. So my first day was crazy. My first call was a 13 year old that raped a seven year old. And then the second call right after that was a double homicide and trying to take a statement from a guy that's, you know, spurting out on the table at the hospital and another, you know, I, wow. I, I was spinning trial, trial by fire. Oh, yeah. I was spinning and I realized that I didn't know. I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss on this show or not, but I didn't know my A from a hole in the ground. Right. <laughs> it was, it was, I mean, but that's, you know, again, that's, that's why you have those training officers and that's why you end up looking up to them. Right. But no, it took, it took some time. And I know I still remember one of the cadres in the Academy telling me that you're not a real cop until you've been on the street for at least two years. And I didn't know what she meant at the time by that. Yeah. Right. And now I do. Now I, I agree with her. I, I mean, you, you, you know, you're a real cop, but you're, you don't really feel comfortable. You don't feel confident in the job um, in, until you've experienced a wide variety. And then you start variations of those calls, but you start experiencing the same calls again. That's, that's when I feel like you've, you kind of made it right. You're exactly, you know, you know I mean? and that, and that's an interesting, that's an interesting topic. And the reason I say it's an interesting topic is because what we have seen recently with the, the, you know, literally the, um, the, the 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 number of officers who have just either resigned or retired mm -hmm. all over the country. I mean, you know, I think we probably have less police officers nationally now than than ever before. And so we have, I mean, is Sacramento down people? Oh yeah, oh, yeah we're short. And 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 with cops, we've had the privilege of meeting guys from all over the country. And I, I love that aspect of speaking for cops. Um, but cops are cops, right? We're the same. You can go to the East Coast, West Coast, and I know we have different politics, but it, it, it's it, we're all the same cops in general. And every department we've talked to, everybody is down. So because so, we can't fill academies anymore. Exactly. But but what where I'm going with this is what what you just talked about. It, it takes it, you don't come out of the academy and you're and you're a full fledged cop ready to rock and roll. And this is something that the public really doesn't. Ha doesn't know because it, it, they're not they're not educated in our world but and this is why the the crisis that's facing law enforcement is so critical because um okay you got you have you're down 100 people or if, if you could push a button right now and you had 100 more cops in the police academy you're still not going to have the um, the ability for those police officers to go out and do the job properly. So it, there's a there's a huge learning curve here. So from the time an applicant puts in that application to go, goes through the hiring process, goes through the academy, there's the 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 police agency is so far behind the eight ball now. And then think of this now because I think we're going to create a whole new generation of police officers who are instantly facing more stress than we did as young as younger officers because they're going to be asked to do more with a lot less so that's why i find it interesting excuse me allergies okay all right let's say let I it got, go buddy i got past that one I got well past it was a, it was while you're doing that i was about to say you made me think it it's been a, an interesting contradiction of getting hired right after 9 11 right cops and military people liked us right you know yeah, and I, exactly. I don't like to use the hero word but that the public looked at us that way right and then to see the transition to now 20 years later i mean it's night and day it's heartbreaking it, it is it is and that adds once again you know you, the the same topic that, that you're you're in town for is is you know the 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 conference about traumas of law enforcement 
And part of those those traumas are how police officers are being affected by the current social atmosphere and all of the anti-law enforcement policies, procedures, laws that have been put into place. You've been doing this long enough. Do you see that the um, younger officers are facing are facing stressors that that you didn't as a young cop? And how is how is the current social situation affecting the mental and emotional well-being of our officers? Well, I mean, it, 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 to sum it up, I guess to, to make a, a long answer long or, or short, um, you know, back in the day, we would do our jobs. And if we did our jobs and followed our policy and followed the law, we didn't worry about anything, right? We, we did our job. We did it to the best of our ability. We followed all our policies and procedures and we followed the law and we were good. We didn't worry about home or anything, losing our houses or going to jail, right? Now, some of these young officers, they're coming into it, and it depends on the region a little bit, but you know, you're coming in and, and you do your job and you follow your policy and you follow your procedure and you follow the law, you can still get hung out to dry because if you hit the wrong, the media doesn't like it or it's the wrong this or that, now you, you're, you're getting charged whether you deserve it or not. You're getting put on admin leave whether you did anything wrong or not. Um, and and you got to now you got to worry about your career and your freedom and everything else. And you did your job based on your training and everything else. We never had to worry about that before. Right, right, exactly. So, in your role as in with concerns of police survivors and going around and talking to the cops and also wives, I, I want to get your your opinion about this. Um, are you seeing that it, that the younger officers are now becoming more emotionally? Um, in emotionally, I don't want to say emotionally invested, but dealing with higher levels of, of, of stress and trauma than we did as younger officers because of the sociological issues. Yeah, I think they're going to have, I think they're having to deal with a lot of this earlier before they've had a chance to harden up, you know, get that harder shell that we get after a little while, right? Um, get a little more acclimated to the department and the politics just internally. And now they're dealing with all the external stuff as well. Um, you know, I, I feel, yeah, I feel that they're having, they're getting hit a little bit harder, a little earlier. And some of them, you know, it, I feel like based on just talking to friends and academy rates and stuff like that and dropout rates and watching our own list of people that are retiring versus what we're hiring mm -hmm. and then resigning, some of the new hires getting resigned, you know, resigning on their own. Um, there's a discrepancy there. And, and I got to feel that that's one of the main reasons. Yeah. So you you deal with with a, 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 on the spousal side. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing from the spouses of especially these younger officers? Well, and I with us too, the divorce rate is fairly high. And I think we've talked about it. A lot of it is our officers go to the academy. They get tools for their toolbox, right? They're getting the training. Well, as a spouse at home, we're not getting the same training. So we don't have the training of the red flags. We don't have the training of what's going on with our officer. And so when our officer comes home and they might not be in a good mood or they had a bad call, most spouses kind of look at it like it could be our fault. There's something going on in the home life when it's something going on at work. And so one of the things we've been trying to do is train. And when we speak, we speak from our experience of what we've seen as a married couple, as a mother, what's going on with our kids, trying to let more spouses know to get more involved in it. We wish more departments not only did the academy for our officers, but included their family too. And just 
a little bit of training, a little bit of tools for our toolbox, a little bit more for us so we can support because we are the support system at home. And most likely we're going to see the red flags first, what's going on with our officers as they change. Because how can a guy, girl, anybody that becomes officer not change in this job? Something's going to change, good and bad, and we want to be there and help them as best as we can. Right, and, and, and it's so essential. And you know, the, the the families of law enforcement officers are often the forgotten people, and uh, and and it's so critical um, to have a support system when when you're seeing what you're seeing as a cop, when you're experiencing those. I mean, literally, you see trauma on almost every single day. It may it may not be to the point where it's a life and death trauma, but still, you're seeing people at their very worst. Um, you're seeing the the effect that crime has on families, and then there's of course the factors of you know feeling a little um, almost inadequate now because of the restraints put on law enforcement officers by the very politicians who who should be playing the role of the protector of the people, and uh, but instead they're doing quite the opposite. We've got to take a hard break, and then we'll come right back. You've all heard Dr. McCullough and others share over and over the value of keeping your sinuses cleansed. It's a smart move all year, but even more so when we're cooped up inside. It's not really open for debate any longer. Those that live smart and live well pay attention to nasal and oral hygiene. Cofix RX has just the tools for the job with our nasal and throat cleanse. Click the Cofix RX banner on AmericaOutloud.shop to get 20% off your entire order. That's right, americaoutloud.shop. Use coupon code OUTLOUD. That's coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off your entire order. Use CofixRx because it works. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD.
Many voices, one freedom, united in the First Amendment. Our goal is to herald the voice of genuine liberty at AmericaOutloud.news. A place where you'll find the naked truth expressed with a patriotic heart. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of going to the hospital. My doctor tells me nutrition doesn't work. Trust is earned. We are the Energetic Health Institute, and we want to earn your trust. Natural medicine, holistic nutrition, detoxification, fasting, cellular healing, and so much more. Remember, the best way to be free is to be healthy. So stop being a patient and start being a student at energetichealthinstitute.org. ASEA believes that inside each of us is the potential to feel our very best. Our customers will tell you how our products have made a difference for them, from improving immune health and supporting gut health to reducing the appearance of wrinkles and even improving mind, mood, and energy. Make our breakthrough products an essential step in fulfilling your greatest potential. ASEA, we power potential. For exclusive savings, use code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your first order today. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Today's high-stress, on-the-go lifestyle makes it hard to stay heart-healthy. Lifestyle changes like exercise and diet are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support three aspects of heart health. Cholesterol, blood pressure, and triglycerides with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients. You would need to take 13 pills to get the same amount of nutrients in each gel pack. And these great-tasting gels come in a small packet. Tear off the top, shoot it down, or mix it in water. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. Welcome back to the show, and I've got Scott and Liz Brown here in the studio with me. We're going to get back to uh, right back to the story. So, you you experienced one of the worst nightmares that that a police officer can experience: the death of someone close to you who served with you. Yeah. And this was um, this is a very very dramatic and traumatic situation that you still live with today, and in fact, probably sent you on a different path than you ever thought. So if you would, uh, let's talk about that incident and the effect of it as we move further into the information about what took place. Right. Um, I, I mean, obviously there's so much to that, that day and that incident 
Um, you know, we'd have to be here for hours and hours for me to, right. to give the full, but I'll give you the quick uh, down and dirty version of it. Um, so like I said, I'd known Danny for years and he brought me over to our pop team. Uh, that particular day was October 24th, 2014. Before you do that, oh, yeah. tell me about Danny. Uh, well, Dan Danny was, uh, Danny was, a great, he was a great guy. He was, um, he's, we, we referred to him as a bulldog. Sometimes we referred to him as a teddy bear, depending on the day. Um, he was on the department, I think 15 years or no. Yeah, no, he did 15 years right around then, um, passed on a sergeant promotion because he wanted to stay on the pop team. Um, father of two, um, yeah, married to, to, uh, Susan, uh, great guy. Uh, he was one of those guys that you either liked him or you didn't cause he spoke his mind and I loved him right away. I mean, him and I got along, uh, fantastically. Um, he got me over on the team. Um, we vacations together. My kids called him uncle Danny. Um, he was just, and he was, a, he was a generous guy too. All, I know all his family reunions and events were at his house cause he loved hosting. Um, you know, he, he kind of kept them all together and, and, you know, moving in the right direction, all that stuff. Um, and he was planning on retiring. He was three years out from retirement. He just moved about a month before the incident. Uh, I know cause I helped him move his huge bed that weighed a ton. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was just a great guy and he was about his family. He was proud of his daughters and, uh, you know, and he, he loved, he loved working. He, he loved being a, a beat cop, a, a, you know, boots on the ground guy. Um, so for him to pass on that promotion wasn't, I, I wasn't particularly hard for him because he, he loved his job at the time. He loved kicking indoors and taking people to jail for doing bad stuff. All right. And let's talk about what happened. Okay. So that day, um, we were, our pop team was pseudo unmarked. We were, you know, BDUs and tack vests. We were rolled around in an unmarked crown Vic, although, you know, everybody knew what it was. And, uh, that particular day we took somebody to jail, helping out our probation department. And on the way back into town, back into <coughs> our area, we decided to stop by a motel six. And, um, I don't know how it is everywhere else, but in Sacramento motel six was, that's where all the fugitives are. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, you drive there with your back door open because somebody would jump in kind of thing, right? And we went there all the time, this particular one. It was drugs, guns, prostitution, that kind of thing. And so that's what we were there looking for. Um, Danny drove because I was a little faster on foot than he was, and he was an EVOC instructor. Dude was amazing behind the wheel kind of thing. <coughs> and so uh, anyway, we were going through the parking lot. I was working the computer, and we pull up to this car in the back corner where all the dirt happened because there was no cameras. There was no security. It was out of the view of the road. And Danny puts it in park, pops out the door, says there's two in the car. He starts approaching the driver's side. I go around on the passenger's side, and that's where uh, the, the suspect's uh, wife was standing. I'm talking to her, but she's ignoring me. Um, finally get her to turn around and look at me, and she has this wide-eyed look on her face, and she shuts the trunk really slowly, and you know, all the hairs on my neck stand like, Ooh, we, need to, we need to get this situated, but there's something in this car, right? That was my thinking at the time. Didn't hear a word from the passenger side, from Danny, anything like that. There was no yelling or screaming. Um, pretty much as soon as she shut the trunk, I heard about six shots come up from the driver's side of the car. And I'm standing by the back passenger door. Um, you know, obviously everything locked into like just slow motion, just weird, you know, like I, I, it's hard to describe. Because this whole thing that I'm going to describe happened in about a minute and a half, maybe less. So I turned to look in that direction. I don't see Danny standing there and he was short, but he wasn't that short because it was a Mercury Marquis. And uh, as I'm kind of backing up and starting to draw at the same time, the suspect popped up over the hood of the car, leveled his nine at me and fired about nine rounds at me. And I remember seeing, hearing and seeing the first one. And then after that, I didn't hear anything. 
but I know that he was still firing at me because I saw the flash and I felt them going by my neck and my ears. Um, I could actually feel the bullets whizzing by. Um, I ended up, fi I finished drawing, returning fire. He ducked down. I fed my rounds through the back window to about where I thought he was at. Um, and then took a pause and I was going to step over to see where Danny was, where the suspect was. In my mind, I'm hoping Danny just kind of ducked down when the shooting started kind of thing. Didn't even make one step over and I saw the front post of an AR come up from where the suspect had ducked down and I'm in an open parking lot with no cover and a nine with about three rounds left in it. So I took cover behind a car about, I don't know, six, seven cars down, got my radio traffic out. I heard a single shot come out and I remember screaming in my head, oh my God, he just executed Danny. Um, Cause we've all seen those videos, those training videos where they go up and finish him off kind of thing. It's not what happened. Turns out later, we don't know if it was an AD or if he was shooting at me and missed or whatever, but um, Danny was already down at that point. Um, and then the world came crashing in on me. I'm like, oh shit, I don't know where this guy is. I got to develop a game plan to get back at him. And I knew the hotel like the back of my hand. So I developed this plan to go into the interior and come around on him and blah, blah, blah. And as I started to execute that plan, um, the car backed up and took off before I could get over to him. A couple of details in there I'm going to leave out because I don't really like talking about it. So um, when I finally went down the, to where he was at, um, that's when I first saw him, uh, gun still in the holster, and he'd been shot in the forehead. Um, I'd been on long enough at that point, I, I knew he was gone. I mean, there was no question in my mind. But, you know, you call it out, you try to administer some sort of first aid, knowing that you're, I mean, second I touched him, I knew it wasn't, you know, there was nothing. But, um, and then it was all kind of a blur after that. Like, I can remember all, all to that point in crisp detail. And then it starts to get fuzzy. I start mixing up my timelines and stuff. But basically, I got pulled off of him um, by another one of our deputies, Bob French, who was actually the next officer killed in our department two oh, and a half boy. years later. I um, remember that. Approximately two miles from that location, actually. Um, I have pictures of me and Bob in D.C. putting Danny's name on the wall in 15. And then the next time I was in D.C. was to put Bob's name on the wall. Oh, my God. Um, we've actually lost 10 in my department since I've been on in the 20 years, um, 22 years. Um, anyway, so I got pulled off and then I got started. They started taking me to our detective division. And then that's when I called Liz at home um, just to, you know, because I knew, I knew, you know, between media and everybody else and that somebody was going to reach out to her. And I wanted her to know I was at least, you know, still, still alive. And I didn't really get much out other than I'm okay, but I was crying and sobbing and, and probably couldn't have said my name if I wanted to. Um, and then they went and got her from the house. She had to get the kids squared away and not really tell them and a couple other things. Uh, and then took her to our detective division. And then while we were there, um, that's when we found out that after the suspect had left me, he had uh, gone down not too far, contacted a civilian, shot him a whole bunch of times. He lived, um, carjacked a female in the same cul-de-sac, took her car, didn't like it because it was too public and it was a red, I think, Mustang. And so he carjacked, he, yeah, he tried to carjack somebody else, but they had a landscaping trailer attached to their truck and then actually carjacked another landscaper, but helped them remove the trailer and then took the truck. And then as he was going up uh, the freeway up 80, heading eastbound, um, he saw on the, the blue alert on the roads, he saw the, the license plate and the description. So he bailed off, got lost up in Auburn and um, ironically, or God watching over, um, he pulls up in front of a retired highway patrol officer's house who's sitting in his front window drinking coffee, listening to the radio about what's happening in Sacramento. And he looks out his window and sees the guy. 
My man, man. Taking the license plates off the truck. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he calls that in. And I, like I said, I'm trying to make this fast. Yeah. Um, Placer shows up. He immediately starts shooting at those two officers with the AR. They bail down a hill. Um, their car isn't in park. It drives forward and hits his truck. He jumps in the patrol car and takes off in the patrol car, leaving his wife in the truck with a handgun that she had in her purse that she could have used on me and she didn't. Um, so he's taken off through these neighborhoods in a patrol car now and the radio traffic up there sucks because it's hilly. And Mike Davis and his partner get behind the car thinking they're following one of their partners behind the suspect. Oh man. Pull into a cul-de-sac and they jump out and they're immediately taking fire but they're not looking at the patrol car because it's one of theirs, right? At least in their mind. By the time they figured out it was the suspect shooting at him, Mike Davis took a, a rifle round through the chest and never even made it to the hospital. And then another officer took a ricochet to his hand, got some shrapnel in his forearm. Um, suspect pulled the shotgun out of the car and got down a hill and into a house. Surrounding call out at that point because somebody saw him go in. Um, he looked for more weapons in the house. They could tell by how he was looking around, drank some booze, um, took a dump on the carpet, took a nap. And then, uh, and then they poured enough gas in there to kill a small army. And he came crawling out on his back and gave up and they arrested him. And then three and a half years later, we had a trial. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, and while all that's taking place, <clears throat> you're at the station. Yeah. And so we were listening this, to what's going on. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, and I, I, I say this because I just said it yesterday is obviously I already, I mean, at that moment I was drowning in guilt, trauma, guilt, everything, because Danny was my boy. He was my partner. He was my yeah. friend. It was my job to protect him. I must have missed a cue. I must have missed something. There was something I did that got him killed. And that was what was going through my mind at the time. And then we actually kind of just calmed down. Our pastor you know, prayed with me a little bit and got me a little bit calmed down. And then we walked out of one of the rooms and we heard a detective who was listening to the radio. And that's when we found out about Mike Davis and everything else. And I mean, I, I at that moment, I felt like I might as well have shot Mike myself. Oh, because cool. I didn't take care of that guy in the parking lot. I should have shot and killed that guy. And I did hit him, by the way. All 16 rounds got sucked up by the car and the pillar and the seat. They were in the car. They were right where I was going and right where he was at. But they all got sucked up by the car because, you know, all our rounds spread out pretty quick. Right. But one made it through and got him in the forearm hand area, and that was it. Which worked out in the trial because he bled all over all the scenes. But, um, but yeah, I felt like I, I had so much survivor's guilt that I felt like I, I felt like I did something to get Danny killed and that I might as well have killed Mike myself that moment and I fell apart I was beside I, myself I can't I can't even imagine what what you were going through then well <clears throat> so the the suspect um eventually went to trial what happened there with him um well uh, long history it was an interesting story on him as well he was uh illegal immigrant deported I think three That's times nice. that we know of had several aliases um, had Sinaloa tattooed on his back and was supposedly, he claimed he was a hitter for the Sinaloa cartel. So they actually sequestered us for a little while. Um, turns out he was kind of mostly just a drug mule for him. Um, and, uh, he was actually on the run cause he had pointed a gun at his brother in um, Utah and was heading to Oregon, I think, and came I 80 and he was going to go I five North. Um, anyway, uh, so long story short, he did get convicted. They had to, you know, they did all a change of venue appeal and a sanity plea. And then they had to get two juries because he was death penalty and she wasn't. And then it was shared prosecution between Placer County and Sac County and a whole bunch of other things. Um, 
But after the trial was all over, he ended up getting the death penalty twice, once for Mike, once for Danny. Um, and I know it sounds harsh, but I'm hoping that means they kill him, bring him back to life and kill him again. Amen. Um, because I, it, as a side note, I, I've been doing this a long cop a long time. And at most of the people I've dealt with, I don't believe are evil people. I think they're people who have made bad decisions in their life and they've gotten to a bad point and they're desperate and they've done some dumb stuff. I believe this man is evil. Right. I just want to make that very clear. Yeah, you know, very, very few evil people I've encountered and he, I believe, is, is just an evil person. And uh, it's interesting you say that. You know, I've had this conversation on this show before that... Um, that evil exists. Oh yeah. And there are people that, that, um, that just bear that within them. But as you said, I'm a, in complete agreement. Most people, they, they, you know, they, they're doing dumb stuff at the worst time in their life, but they're, they don't have that intrinsic evil within them. Yeah. He's this, this is a guy clearly. Cool. So, all right. So <clears throat> this was, this was the beginning of a journey for you. Oh, it was, it changed, it was, uh, I mean, it, life it, was, it was life changing. Our, our, we've, we've gone so many different paths and directions that we would have never thought. Let me, let me, let me switch to you now. So you get this information. He calls you. What went through your brain when he gave you that, just that initial phone call? What was, what was your, your first perception? Well, I was in shock because when I did actually hear his voice, it literally that's all it was, was I'm okay through the sobs. The sergeant had to get on the phone and he said, physically Scott is okay, but mentally he's not. And we're going to come get you. I said, okay, well, what about Danny? And they would not give me any information. There was no information they could tell at the time. So I just knew in my heart, I'm like, okay, called my mom, get the kids taken care of. They're bringing a sergeant. As soon as I turned on the TV, yellow police tape, had the Motel 6 pictures, said officer's been shot. So I knew it had to been Danny. And for I, I'm a crier. And for three days, I did not cry because he was so broken. Something inside me just went, okay, you got to be here for what is going on. Because I, again, no tools, no, had no idea what I was going to do. And I just prayed. And I feel like I always say the Holy Spirit just kind of took over me and gave me the tools I needed when they asked what he needed. Does he need to go in a hotel for the weekend? I said, yes, but we also need a jacuzzi tub because I need to be able to relax him and I need a suite. And it was all these tools that I wish I kind of had known sooner, but I was able to provide. And we tell people all the time, like best thing you can kind of do sometimes is when your officer is in a situation like this, remove him from the home life. The last thing he needed to do was go home. The last thing he needed to do was be a dad. He just needed to be an officer that had lost his friend. And like we said, the guilt that he was dealing with, he was spiraling and I just had to be there for him. And having no idea how much our life was gonna change in the last, I mean, we're gonna be 10 year anniversary of his end of watches this year. And we still, we don't think about it every day, but it does still creep in for sure. And every day we would see a newspaper article or we would see it on the news. We'd see Danny's face. And then when the court, gosh, the court, the trial in itself was a trauma in itself. And I can imagine being so, there. Yeah. I know people that watched some of the stuff on TV His even antics. across all the way to the East Coast because he was you know, telling me that I killed Danny and that he wanted to kill more cops and threatening the, the judge and blowing kisses at the widows. And like, I mean, we talked to somebody and I think it was Indiana when we were there and he's like, yeah, I wanted to shoot my TV. And I'm like, I feel you, buddy. Yeah. Um, we were in the room with him. Because he was just so yeah. out there. Um, 
it was yeah it was it was hard in itself all right so you've written a book about this yeah all right with a so, lot of help I, by well, the way. <laughs> I, I get it i get it <laughs> having authored a, a book or two yeah. Yeah. Uh, a cop story of murder mayhem and the aftermath facing evil um this is a this is a chronicle of your experience and it's an experience that stays with you the rest of your life but now you're doing something with this experience that is helping others talk about that and and how how through assisting other people through helping other people it helps to heal you yeah it actually started quite innocently our local cops chapter um who we'd gotten to know um was having a fundraiser and they were like hey we need uh we need some people to open for sheriff clark um you know we usually try to have survivors do you want to do it and it was uh, this guy named Michael Stoltzman, and really, I I I, I like the guy, and I, I respected him, so I'm like, sure, if Mike's asking, yeah, I'll do it. I didn't ask any questions, which I probably should have. And uh, he, I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. And as it was getting close, I started asking questions about, okay, where's it at? How many people are going to be there? And there, he said 700 people, and I'm like, 700? Are you kidding me? <laughs> so she had to rent me, a, you know, a, a suit because she didn't want me to look like an idiot, and um, I was nervous. I was nervous, right? And uh, I got up there, and I did my thing, and and got through, I don't even remember what I said, to be honest with you, but I got up there and did it. And I went in the back and the rest of the night, it was crazy because I had guys I'd never met before, officers giving me a hugs, telling me I said stuff they needed to hear and they appreciated me being open about it. Um, buying me drinks, I couldn't walk by the end of the night. I can um, imagine. You know, that kind of thing. But it, it kind of set off the, the, <clears throat> the, the feeling of, wait, I, I can help people. And, and also the idea of if we just sit on this, and I hate to say it like this, but, but he won again, right? right. If, if all this tragedy is for nothing and we just sit here and marinate on it and we just have our own suffering, but we don't share it with anybody, he's going to win and nobody gets any better. And I know, and you'll, I'm, I'm assuming you'll agree with me, is one of the big problems with law enforcement officers is we don't share our feelings. We don't talk about touchy-feely stuff. Right. Um, we don't admit weakness. We don't cry in front of other people, all that stuff. And I get a time and a place for that. You can't fall apart on a call. Um, cause that's just not the way it works. But, um, you know, we started realizing that guys are hurting because of this stuff, but they're not willing to share it. And maybe if some knuckle dragger like me shares his story and is open about it, but still looks like a real cop, maybe they'll be willing to go get some help or get some therapy or get some marriage counseling, or maybe they walk into a church or maybe they go to a retreat simply cause they're like, you know what? I like that guy. It worked for him. I'll give it a shot. Exactly. Exactly. Do you, do you also, in, in some sense, believe you owe it to Danny? Oh, by far. I mean, a lot of the pop team job was we were community oriented as well. Um, but, you know, and, and I feel like I owe it to him one because, again, his sacrifice is, I mean, there's nothing I can do to make up for that sacrifice. I would trade all the friends I've made, all the things I've done, all the people I've seen, and some of the cool stuff that has happened since. I would trade it all again, obviously, to have him back, but that's not how it works. Um, and and I, yeah, I owe it to Dan, I owe it to his family, I owe it to uh, myself, I owe it to Liz, um, I owe it to God, I owe, it, I owe a lot of, there's a lot of things that are owed to make sure that, um, again, his sacrifice wasn't for nothing, he's never gonna be forgotten, as long as I have air in my lungs, Danny's name will be repeated over and over again. And whether there's one person or nobody listening, his sacrifice will not be forgotten. 
Um, but yeah, yeah, I definitely owe it to him to to go out there and try to help people and help as many as I can. So you found you found a, a, a strong medium in um, in working with the the concerns of police survivors uh, structure, um, and and as his as his spouse. You two have joined together to work together, and Concerns of Police Survivors has given you this platform, which is very, very strong. And between that and 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 writing the book, and uh, and and uh, and all the time, you're still continuing to work as a cop. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm still working, and and cops. Yeah, cops has been amazing because not only are they giving us a platform, but because of the contacts where the people we're meeting through cops. It's, it's expanding our platform as well. We're having, you know, other agencies and other organizations like, hey, we loved what you said. Can you come do it at our agency? Can you do just a marriage one, like just a law enforcement marriage one at our at our at our conference or whatever it is? Right. We've had churches like, hey, I know you talk about faith and you're, you know, can you do a, a cop and faith based one at our church? And I've done a couple of those and, and and she's done just one's her. And we when we first started. I don't know if you call it conceited or what, but I'm like, okay, you know, they want me to talk and share my story and all the cop stuff, right? But as we started to get feedback, we realized that they heard a lot of my stuff in one form or another, but her side and talking mm -hmm. about kids and right. talking about, so the book is about the incident and I want to make sure that, and we made sure it was documented appropriately and accurately. There's no embellishment. Everybody's name in there was uh, approved. All the families, I didn't even start it without permission from the Davises and the Olivers. Um, but it's actually more, in my opinion, the book is more about Liz and I and how we got through it with our family, how we got through it with our marriage, how we got through it with our faith, how going back to work, which was hard, the trial and all the stuff that happened after it. We had to set the tone, obviously, with the incident. Sure. But it's about people and people don't realize is how how much after those things and how long after those things. Never ending. No, never ending. How do people get the book? Uh, the Amazon. Amazon. They can go to Amazon. Where else? Yeah. Amazon. Yeah. 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 Right, we, so. we, we self-published, and uh, that's pretty much where you can get it. Um, we have a website, too, but it's a link to Amazon, so they can just go there. So. <laughs> All right. Well, so if people want to book you to speak, where uh, do they go? Scottandlizbrown.com. There you go. Scottandlizbrown.com. <laughs> I want you to look up Scottandlizbrown.com. Get this book. Get this book. It's very, very powerful. And... Uh, so, um, also, you have been to the Wounded Blues National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. And uh, if you would, how powerful was that to attend? Uh, it was awesome. We went to the one in, uh, I'm sure I'm going to say it wrong, Terre Haute, Indiana. <laughs> You're close. The party capital <laughs> of the world. But it was, it was awesome. It, it was um, we first time we'd been we didn't know what to expect and so i mean the lineup of speakers that you had was amazing Incredible. um you know i think every i think everybody there had a book and i think i bought or traded every <laughs> single one of them and i've read every single one of them since then um you know just and then the vendors like you said uh, we met a whole bunch of different vendors everything from um, the commercial you did for the the internet thing to holsters and tack gear and just stuff like that um you know the hospitality of everybody and, and it was amazing to speak at it was amazing to attend I, I would recommend it for anybody so if you're law enforcement the national law enforcement survival summit is going to be held in las vegas this year it's our fourth annual wow fourth annual national law enforcement survival summit uh september 26th through the 29th um go to the woundedblue.org and register now we really, really um, 
uh, would like you to bring your spouse or significant other. We designed some of the, the uh, speaking, the speakers just for that, because we understand um, exactly what you're saying, that the families are, are, are so intrinsically involved here that there has to be, there has to, they have to be included in this. So I want to thank you guys so much for, for coming today and being in the studio with me. Um, as I said, it's a whole lot more fun than, than, uh, than, than doing it over Zoom yes. but, uh, or, or another platform. But uh, you guys are doing amazing work. You're touching lives and you're, you're, you're continuing your partner's legacy. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having thank us. Thank you. We'll see you again next week here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Randy Sutton. Talk to you soon.